for this time in word. We have sang, we have been just greatly blessed by truth that was sang today. From our littlest ones to our older ones, let us in worship, in truth, and our hearts are stirred and we're reminded of the greatness of our God and Savior. Now, Lord, we turn to your word. It is unchanging. It is so perfect and sufficient and without error, and it gives us what we need for life and godliness. So may we good, be good listeners and good doers of the word of God today. Thank you for all that are here. What a blessing to see so many faithful and those who are visiting. Lord, I pray that you would bless them. Their time here would be beneficial to their love for you, your love for the word and love for one another. We do pray for those, um, many maybe even tuning in now, uh, they don't have the strength or don't have the health to be here this morning, so we ask that you would strengthen them. Thank you for those who are here, Lord, who have gone through some tremendous trials this week. They knew they needed to be in church today, so I thank you for them, Lord. Strengthen them, bless them, direct their paths, Lord. So grateful for our missionaries around the world, men and women sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, planting churches in places that uh, we can't get to. They're doing it, Lord. And so I pray, Lord, you would help them and guide them, give them great favor in those cities and towns and villages. Lord, bless them. May they train many national pastors and leaders who will go forward to proclaim the truth in their own language and their own culture. So, Lord, we beg you for the support and strength and our missionaries, Lord. Lord, now we turn to your word. Bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this passage, you begin to think, what's in a name? This is now the name of Jesus coming out. It has not ever been used up to this point. There's other names given to him that are more titles. We'll look at some of those. Uh, statements of his character. But finally, we're getting to the name Jesus. And it's here as the new covenant starts to come to light. I love names. They're, they're wonderful. I, I, I think there was a time in our world, um, particularly then and, and sometimes now, names are chosen because they mean something. Even you, you parents, you may have chose the name of your children because it's meaningful. It brings to mind someone that you care for or uh, you love or or things about that person that remind you of things that bring joy to your heart and so you chose that name. Maybe you just liked C's and you just decided to name your own kids C's. That's what we did. Um, But names are important, right? As I look out across the audience, I know many of your names. And your name is, is, is what links me to knowing you. When I think about your name, I think about who you are, what your personality is like, what your traits are, who you're married to, who you're, who you're connected to, your, what you do for work, what's happened in you in this life. As much as I do know, I connect that with you. Names are important, aren't they? The name uh, is also associated with other names, isn't it? Uh, our life has been connected, Gina and I, for many years, so we we're Scott and Gina. We we're always known as Scott and Gina. They go together. You think of us in a certain way, I hope positively, <laughs> when you hear that name. <laughs> and, and, and so it is with the name Jesus. And we're going to explore that today. And, and the names that are given in this passage in Luke 2 and so forth. Um, and I know your heart will be overjoyed. I want to look at this passage, though, as we warm up to this. And I want to start with a first point right off the bat. Number one, and I want you to think about this. It's very wordy, but think with me. A righteous father willing to die to self for the glory of another son. Now think through this. We're talking about Joseph here, right? A righteous father willing to die to self for the glory of another son. That's why Joseph's name needs to be remembered. Look with me at verse 18. These are astounding verses as we drop into the narrative of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as followed, your Bible will say there. 
when his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph. Oh, that's a wonderful thing. There's an engagement. There's a betrothal year. This is two people whose parents came together and said, let's put these people together. In the Jewish world, it would have been names and tribes and would have linked up uh, in heritage. It would have been just a, a wonderful thing, something that the parents have been working on for years and years and years. But there's a problem. Before they came together, before the final wedding ceremony, where the couple is united together before God and families, and then united together in that sacred, set-apart physical relationship, the Bible says she, Mary, was found to be with child. I'll stop right there. That's devastating, if you're Joseph. We don't know how he heard about it. The Bible doesn't tell us. Our staff, we were wrestling with this passage a little bit. Um, I love our staff meetings because we get into the Bible and really study for a few minutes together. And we, we thought about this deeply. And, and how did he know? The Bible doesn't tell us. Um, may, maybe, maybe somehow Mary got word to him. I, I can just imagine how that went over. Hey, by the way... There's a little bit of hiccup. (laughs) I'm pregnant. But I haven't been with another man. It's done by God. How would that have gone over? (laughs) How would you receive that, gentlemen? Tells her that it's by the Holy Spirit. Did she get word to him somehow? Mostly history tells us that in this betrothal period, they very seldom saw each other. It was a time for preparation. It was a spiritual time of preparation as well. They they were not united together a lot. In some cases, uh, history tells us that they rarely, if ever, saw each other in that betrothal year. Did she send a message? Did she run off to Elizabeth first? Because the Bible tells us in Luke 1 that her, her relative, Elizabeth, was already in her sixth month with John the Baptist in her womb. And maybe she went there and Elizabeth instructed her how to go back and speak to Joseph in some way. We, we just don't know. The narrative doesn't tell us. But this is intense. <laughs> us married people. If you've ever had a child, if you've ever been in a deep relationship, would imagine all of the stress that came with that statement. But there's something unique about Joseph. This is what we want to focus in on, that this man Joseph, her husband, this betrothed man to her, the Bible says, being a righteous man. That's a great statement. Ladies, if you're in here and you're single and you're looking for a man, find a righteous man. First, righteous because he's been dressed in the robes of Jesus Christ. He's not dressed in his own righteousness. And second, that righteousness has caused him to live in a right standard before God for his joy and for the glory of God. And I think it's an amazing statement and it helps us understand the rest of this. He was a righteous man, yet he did not have all the information. The narrative is moving us around in in what's happening in his heart and mind, saying, not wanting to disgrace her, planning to send her away secretly. You've heard me probably speak on this passage before, but you realize what was, was up against her. First of all, if their families and the tribe that she was from would hold to the strict teaching of the Old Testament, the literal teaching of the Old Testament, she was to die, and she was to die by family members. Be stoned to death. If that didn't t- take place because they were under captivity of Rome, they may not have been able to put someone to death. They just destroyed their reputation denounced them as having to do anything to do with the family, and often they were left to prostitution. Joseph knows all this. And so this righteous man is pondering, trying to figure out how he can not hurt this woman he loves, how to deal with her in a secret way so that she will not go under this. He's a righteous man. Verse 20, he is pondering this, he's considering this, the Bible says, 
And I think all of us understand the human aspect of suffering or, or contemplating something very difficult. Many of us have laid in bed at night with an issue that's going on in our lives personally or somebody else's or some way affected by something that is difficult and you can't sleep and you lay there and you ponder something. Uh, you, we've all been there, haven't we? Can you imagine laying on his mat, Joseph, on this night? Like many of us, we eventually do fall asleep and that's what happened. Joseph falls asleep, and there God sends the angel of the Lord, most likely Gabriel. And he appears to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That probably confirmed what Mary told him somehow. Now, there's no rebuttal here. We just see Joseph hearing this great statement. He's, he's in a dream Statement continues to clarify verse 21, and this is where I really want to focus here this morning. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You will not call him Joseph Jr. You will not call him that family name that has been passed down for generations. You will die to that. And you will care for a son that's not yours. I mean, it is quite a statement. This is what I love about this righteous father willing to die to self for the glory of another son. The another is the God the Father, right? Here he's willing to set all those things aside. And, and can you imagine the disgrace that this couple goes through? Who's going to believe the story? Nobody has heard from God in 400 years. And all of a sudden you're pregnant and you have heard from him? I mean, this is, this is staggering. This is earth-shaking in a society like this. And Joseph, being a righteous man, is thinking how to care for this woman he loves. And he even says here, the Bible even says that he is not to take his own right here of naming the son what he would want named. We see the same thing go on with John the Baptist uh, as, the, as the chronological order goes forward. John the Baptist does not give him um, his own birth name. Um, he doesn't pass Zechariah on to him. He gives the name John instructed by the angel as well. And so there's a uniqueness here. These men die to self. Now notice verse 22, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And I think for me, if I was Joseph, this is what I needed to hear. I needed to hear God's word. I needed to hear God's promise of how to obey him and, and know that this was of God. And God always shows you his truth through his word. And here the word is spoken. And notice in verse 24, Joseph awakes. What, what a, different, a different way of awaking than probably that he went to sleep. He went to sleep heavy-hearted, suffering of what to do. Now, woke up, and look what he does immediately from his sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took Mary as his wife. And if you don't think that he's a righteous man, you look at verse 25. He kept her a virgin. Had every right to his intimacy with Mary. It's natural. It's God-given. It's set up from God from the garden. And yet to preserve the integrity of this son, in a sense, from his part, he chose here not to take what was rightfully his until Jesus was born. And look at the final phrase. He called his name Jesus. Number two, the name of the Messiah is finally revealed. We want to start to see that uh, the promises of the Messiah came very, very early on. But this name Jesus does not come till now. 
if you have, if you're willing to do this, I'm going to walk through the scriptures. Otherwise, you might just want to write these down as I read them quickly. I, I want to walk through the scriptures. All uh, uh, oh, we could spend all day thinking about what how the Bible speaks of the coming Christ. But I picked out some select verses to help you think about who he is and who he's going to be and what his name is and and, and all of his characteristics. They're all in the scripture, but they all do not have the name Jesus, but they're worth looking at. Look with me at Genesis chapter 3, or just start writing down these passages. I promise you it would be a great study this week if you want to go back and look at these. Genesis 3 is the fall of man. They reject the word of God. They believe Satan's lies over God's truths, and they fall. And we know this story, and Lord comes and he curses the serpent and tells him to the ground you're going to go. You're going to be cursed worse than all the cattle. It tells us that it says more than all the cattle, so the curse is hitting everything. But here, speaking to the serpent, the snake, um, but certainly is directed to Satan himself. To the belly of the ground you will go and you will eat dust all your life. But in verse 15, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Between Satan and mankind, those people who are made in my image, and between your seed and her seed. Now, that's a tremendous term. Your seed and, and her seed. People don't like to hear this, but there are two families in this world. What are they? Satan's family and God's family. There are just no other two. I know you hear it all the time. Hey, we're all God's children. No, we're not. The Bible does not say that, brothers and sisters. In fact, we were dead in our sins. We belong to the one who, who used to work within us and the sons of disobedience. We belong to him. There's a belonging that the world has to him. That's why Satan takes Jesus up in temptation and says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world because he did help them. He had their souls. There's a promise in this. <laughs> There's a promise that the seed of the woman, there's one coming in the seed of this woman who will crush the head of the serpent, crush the head of Satan. It's a promise speaking forward, but yet no name. If you go forward to Genesis chapter 12, here we see the birth of the nation of Israel. It's with Abraham. He's told in verse 1 to go from his country. He's to leave his relatives. He's to leave his father's house. He's going to go to a land that only God's going to show him. But there I'm going to make you this great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. But then he says at the end of verse 3, and in you, in you, your seed, we're right back to that, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. There is a seed coming, but no name. No name yet. Follow me to Genesis 18. We are now in the trees of Mamre. Sarah is his wife. They are greatly older now. They're pushing 190, and the, probably most likely the pre-incarnate Lord shows up and says, Look, Abraham, next year at this time, I'm going to visit you. You're going to have a child. Sarah laughs in verse 12. We know that. But in verse 17, he says, I'm not going to hide this from Abraham, but I'm about to do since Abraham will surely become great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. No name of Jesus yet. Genesis 22, turn with me there. Here we get to Isaac, this son that was promised is finally born. He's the heir. This is, this is how the hope of the, the coming nation, the, the seeds that will be countless like the stars and the sands. This is the only one. He's, there's no other one. This is it. And God says, I want you to sacrifice your son. Abraham, with great faith, believes that God's going to have to raise him from the dead or do something supernatural in some way because he knows God can't lie. So he goes through with it. You remember the story. God provides a substitute, a male ram with thorns around its horns. Uh, the scene is so Christocentric. It's, it's just absolutely amazing as it points forward. But in verse 15, then the angel of the Lord said to Abraham, second time from heaven, and said, My self, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Verse 17, indeed I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and the sands of the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gates of their enemies. Now look at this. In your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's pointing to Jesus. 
and yet no name of Jesus yet. You go forward to Genesis chapter 49. There's other references, but for the sake of time, we come to the end of Jacob's life. There he is blessing each of the sons, blessing each of the tribes. He's working his way down through one after another, and he comes to Judah. He says in verse 8, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Goes on to talk about his foot on the neck of his enemies and so forth and Judah is like a lion's whelp and and all pointing to the kingliness of this tribe and what's going to come but then in verse 10 he says this the scepter shall never depart from Judah nor shall the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes now here's the first reference to a name of some sort for the Messiah here reference that there's one coming who will bring peace. The book of Leviticus could, we could point to a million things. It's, it's the law uh, pointing to the one, the great high priest who will shed his own blood and reconcile man to God. There's, there's no name given here, but as we studied Leviticus not too long on our Wednesday nights, it just keeps pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right before Moses' death, as I'm just now starting the book of Deuteronomy, on Wednesdays, if you want to hear the introduction to that, it's online now. But as we start this great book, this is a dying man's uh, last sermons. It is marvelous. I can't wait to preach them. But you get to chapter 18, and there in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, Moses tells us that there is one coming, that God is going to raise up a prophet from his own countrymen. So there we we hear terms, Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. Here now the Bible says there's a prophet who's going to come from his own countrymen. And I'll put my words in his mouth, God says, and he will speak them to all that I command him. He will be a prophet, but yet the name of Jesus is not given. Many other passages, but you jump all the way forward to 2 Samuel chapter 7. David is given this great promise as he desires to build a house of God for the worship of his dear, beloved, living God. And as he's gathering those things and God has instructed him, God tells him in verse 16 that your house, your kingdom shall endure before me forever. And then he makes this statement, your throne shall be established forever. Anybody in here from the line of David? Even if you think you are, you could not prove it. All of that was wiped out in 70 AD. This has to refer to someone who can hold a kingdom, who can reign in a kingdom, and, and be established forever. Kings and queens die. We saw it this year. Presidents die. They all get replaced. But not this one, and yet, no name of Jesus yet. We move into the Psalms, and... Too many psalms to hit all of them, but here we begin to find so much communication about the coming Messiah. Psalm chapter 2, God says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy hill. This is great prophetic preaching on who Jesus is. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. And now it kind of switches to the reference of who Jesus is. And Jesus hearing from his father, you are my son today. I've begotten you. Ask me and I will surely give you the nations for your inheritance. So he's going to be the ruler and an inheritance, but yet no name of Jesus. Just turn forward to uh, Psalms chapter 16. This Messiah is going to suffer. But death will not have power over him. Psalms chapter 16, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow, notice this, your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there is pleasure forever. Suffering continues, chapter 22, just over a couple of pages. Chapter 22 this Messiah is going to suffer greatly. Verse 14 says, I am poured out like, a, like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Such a, a depiction a thousand years before the crucifixion of Christ. This type of torture has never, had not, there's no history of it ever. The explanation is as clear as can be that it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaw and you have laid me in the dust of death. 
for the dogs that surrounded me and a band of evildoers incapacitated me. They pierced my hands and my feet and I count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them for my clothing. They cast lots. Clear depiction of the Messiah's suffering but no name of Jesus yet. Psalms 49, just a little further. Here the Bible tells us that God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. Just again reminding him that he'll receive him. He'll see, he'll look upon what Jesus is doing and receive that. Then you jump into Isaiah. We go a little farther into one of the major prophets. And here in Isaiah chapter 7, you come to that great passage where the Bible tells us that, verse 14, that this Messiah, this coming one, will be born of a virgin. She's going to bear a child, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So there we start to get names associated, but not the name of Jesus yet. Emmanuel, we'll see more of that few. Just a two, two pages over to chapter 9, we come to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For this child will be born to us. I think Aaron read this this morning. A son will be given to us. Now listen to this, this description of this Messiah. The government will rest on his shoulders. All of the world's economies and everything that's going to happen will be on him. He will rule and reign in perfect authority. But notice that his name, which hasn't even been given yet, in a sense, will be called Wonderful and Counselor and Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government of government or of peace. No end to peace. This, notice those words. On the throne of the Father and over his kingdom to establish it and behold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore. What a statement of this coming Messiah. Look at chapter 40, just up a few chapters. There we come to Isaiah 40, verse 5. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed. There's a point where this Messiah is going to reveal the glory of the Lord. John said it this way. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory. The Lord Jesus Christ exposed us to the very essence and the very glory of God himself. Because he shares that nature. Chapter 42, just over a couple of pages, verse 6. Here we have the commissioning of his sons. We have now entered into those suffering servant passages of Isaiah. Chapter 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have, been call, I, I have called you in righteousness and I will hold you by the hand and watch over you and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people. Notice this, as a light to the nations. Chapter 49, verse 6, hitchhiking on that same theme. Verse 6, 49, for, chapter 49, verse 6, he says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant, that you should be raised up only, is the idea, for the tribe of Jacob's. To restore, now this is interesting, the preserved ones of Israel. There is an elect of Israel. There always has been. God has always elected people to his name. He has those who are preserved. Not all Israel is Israel, the Bible's clear on. But then notice what he says here. I will also make you a light of the nation so that the salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That is the goal of the Messiah. He is not just coming for the tribes of Israel. Yes, he has preserved ones that he will gather in. But he's coming for the entire world now. Every tribe, every tongue, every language, he is coming after this Messiah whom we really don't have his name yet. It's costly, though. This is going to be very costly to this Messiah who's coming. Chapter 50 over just a couple of pages. Here we come to verse 5 and 7. The Lord God has opened my ear. And I was... Not disobedient, nor did I turn back. But I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheek to those who pluck my beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint. And I know, what I, and I know that I will not be ashamed. This Messiah has a goal. And despite the costliness of what he was going to do, it was coming to rescue his people. Isaiah 52, verse 6, we find the promise of his coming name. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, I am the one 
who is speaking, here I am. Wow, what a statement. The I am God is coming. Isaiah 53, we begin to get into a passage that just often overwhelms us emotionally when we read it. He is not coming with a power and authority. He's not coming on white chargers his first time. He comes lowly. In fact, Isaiah opens up this great text that most of the Jewish world has no idea that it refers to the Lord Jesus Christ or at least rejects that idea. Verse 2, he said, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of the parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. In fact, at this point, they didn't even know his name. Chapter 53, verse 5 Instead of seeing him as this great, handsome guy who stands head and shoulders above everybody else, notice what he's known for. He's the one who is pierced through for our transgressions, verse 5. He is crushed for our iniquities. His chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Drop down to verse 10 and 11. We find this was the Father's plan The Lord was pleased to crush him. And notice the next phrase there. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. The Lord had a plan, the Father had a plan to have his son be crushed by his judgment on our account. But the son had to agree to it. The son had to submit to the father's plan and said, yes, I will do that. I will render myself as the guilt offering, as the sin offering, and it will cost my life in order to redeem. This is the qualities of the nameless Messiah that's coming. Go just a little bit further to chapter 66. There's a promise of complete rule that's coming. Verse 18 For I know their words and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all the nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. This is all the statement of this future Jesus that's coming. He's told of his birthplace in Micah chapter 2. That one might be a little harder to grab really quickly, but we find in Micah chapter 2 that he says in verse 5, verse 2, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrath, Too little to be among the clans of Judah. For you are the one who will go forth from me to be the ruler of Israel. This goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. And though we don't have the name Jesus yet, we know where he's going to be born. There's joy and humility of this coming Messiah. Zechariah chapter 9. We get into such prophetic books here. Chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey. Even on a donkey, the fool of a donkey. Certainly that is pointing towards that great triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but it's a statement of his joyful humility. We know how to get to him. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, reminds those who will be those elect that God will call out of the house of David. He said, I'll pour out on the house of David, verse, chapter 12, verse 10, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. Now look at this. So that they will look on me whom they pierced, and they will mourn for him. All the prophecy of Jesus is laid out The spirit of Elijah, uh, Matthew 3, tells us that John the Baptist came. He was the one preaching in the wilderness. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven was Jesus. He was coming. That kingdom of heaven was coming right to earth. And so these prophecies and many more that we don't have time to look at every one of them. But these prophecies progressively reveal details of this coming Messiah. Now, the Old Testament times, the Old Testament times, they I don't think they fully understood all these things. But it did give them hope. And hope upon hope that there was a Messiah coming. And so you find men and women like Annas and uh, uh, Anna and, and, um, oh, it just went out of my mind. 
Zechariah and so forth, all waiting for this coming of Simeon, coming for this coming of this Messiah. They longed for him. But this is not the same level of comfort when you knew his name that we experience. There's a fuller picture now in this new covenant. I think those among the Hebrews and among the Old Testament who believed by faith, they longed for this coming. They believed in a name that was not yet given, that would bring them salvation. They did not understand that it would come fully through the blood of Christ, yet many of them didn't. But their hope was in a God who could rescue them. I, I thought of two places in the scriptures where men asked for the name of the Messiah. One, Jacob, chapter 32 in Genesis said, when he wrestled with him, he asked, he says, what is your name? And he refused to tell him. Later, Samson, father, uh, fa- Samson's father, Manoah, asked as he met with probably pre-incarnate Christ, asked his name and he said, I'm not going to give it to you. It's too wonderful. I I give you that because you and I do know the name. (laughs) And it's so meaningful to us. And so all this was shrouded in mystery in the Old Testament. But then when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, and it all got revealed to us. And up to this name, the name of Jesus had not been spoken And yet both Mary and Joseph, when clear commands from the angel of the Lord, this is my son and this is his name. His name is to be Jesus. And Old Testament saints lived in wonder and hope and expectation for thousands of years and 400 years of silence to know this one. And here in the presence of Gabriel, this archangel who come from the presence of God, probably in all the glory reflecting off of him, ends the mystery. And he says in Luke 131 to, to, vir, to the Virgin Mary says, you have conceived in your womb and you're going to bear a son and you shall name him Jesus. Mystery done. The long await is over. The future redemption of sinful men is here. And he has a name. It's Jesus. And you'll notice as you work your way back to both Matthew 1, keep your finger there, and Luke 1, that name is linked with his ability to save people from their sins. I think the name of Jesus is beautiful. And for thousands of years now, In the New Testament, New Covenant Church, we have preached his name, we have sung his name, we have prayed his name, we've confessed his name, we have forgiven in his name, we have been forgiven in his name, we're redeemed by his name, we're comforted by his name, we're restored by his name, we find our full joy in his name because we know what it means. It's beautiful. The name of Jesus. And we've not only known his name, but now through his name, all of that character that was all laid out in the Old Testament now finds its personification in the name of Jesus and in that person. In a sense, all the dots are connected, and that's what Jesus does on the road to Aramaeus in Luke 24. He says, oh, foolish one, slow to believe in all what the scriptures have said. They're all about me. And that's why I love studying the Old Testament with Jesus in the center of it. That's why I still preach the Old Testament. Because Jesus said it's all about me. And so we love this name of Jesus. There's nothing more glorious, no greater truth ever connected to any other name than the name of Jesus. Number three, why the name of Jesus? Why the name of Jesus? Well, there's a clear connection to his incarnation, to his humanity, There's a massive connection to us why he's named Jesus because now the description of this Messiah with the great wonderful and mighty counselors and the government upon his shoulders, all those great terms now is in flesh. And he's given the name Jesus. The name of Jesus is uniquely held high by those in true Christian faith. When you think about the name of Jesus, it provokes worship in us. Tragically, today, the name of Jesus is is blasphemed by the world, it's misused, it's taken out of context by religious people. There's those who try to use that name to seek personal gain. 
But not to a born-again Christian. The name of Jesus is everything to us. It's so significant. Our whole lives, our whole eternity is wrapped up in who he is. So Jesus receives his name from his father. And it comes at his incarnation. And, and, and we can't discredit that. Matthew 1 there when he's asleep and then in his dream he's reminded in verse 21, look, she's going to bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus because what he's going to do is he has the power to save people from the death grip of sin. And that's why we love the name Jesus. I think God's choice of the name of Jesus has so much to do with his purpose of coming to earth. The Hebrew word, um, or the Greek form of the Hebrew word, we get Joshua or Jeshua or so forth, is the idea of Jehovah or Yahweh will save. And so the Holy Spirit conceives this child in this womb of this young woman named Mary in this supernatural way, but, way, but then he's birthed naturally. He comes in this life. He lives this perfect human life. He's a perfect brother. Um, he's a perfect son. He's a perfect employee. He, he lives this perfect life. It's all put on display to testify that the Father's plan was to save us, to send his incarnate Savior Son named Jesus, who will prove that he's sinless. Then he'll die this perfect death. He'll beat sin, Satan, and death. He'll rise victoriously over the grave. And then he'll draw all to himself from sin to faith that leads to repentance, and he'll secure us for all eternity. And he gets the name Jesus because he's like us. He's flesh and blood. He bleeds, he dies. He eats, he sleeps. He's connecting, he's connecting Jesus to us. And you can't help but see that this time of year. It's not hard to look and see this one called Emmanuel, one who can save. He's in the arms of his mother. He's a human infant in a manger. He's, he's there brought in uh, into this world. He's sinless, but he's in a very sinful world. He's being held by his mother, a human, who birthed him into this world, and he comes into this sin-stained, dying world. He's burying our griefs. He's carrying our sorrows. He's wounded for our transgressions. He's bruised for our iniquities, and yet he's without sin. But he's called Jesus, so you know him personally. It is not some obscure relationship you have with God. Well, I have a, I have a relationship with a big guy. Oh, it only comes through Jesus. And he has that name. It's a name above all names. The world will hear his name over and over this season. They'll hear great hymns and carols sung throughout this season. They'll, they'll, the hymns will talk about this immeasurable gift of who Jesus is, and they'll never catch it. It's our job to tell them that. I think one of my favorite Christmas verses is probably not one you would connect but it's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. There, the Bible says, for it's impossible for blood and, of bulls and goats to take away sin. Isn't that true? All your human works cannot bring you to God. But then the Bible says this. This is my favorite Christmas verse. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says. <laughs> you know why that's my favorite Christmas verse? Because the Son and the Father are having a conversation in heaven. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Sacrifice and offering are not going to save anyone. They were all pointing towards me. That was not your plan. That was a plan for a type to point to the greater one who was going to come. But people love to do something. I love to give or do something to make myself feel righteous. That's not what's going to save you. And so Jesus on that, that day, I mean, can you imagine that? The Spirit's about ready to place him in, in, into the womb of Mary. He steps out of heaven and he says, Father, sacrifice and offering it was never your plan. It was a body. It was a person. It was Jesus. And he steps out of heaven and steps into that womb of Mary in that beginning stages of conception placed there and protected by the Holy Spirit so he could save us. That's Jesus. That's who we believe in. That's our Lord. The night of the angels appearing to the shepherds. <laughs> they came to them on this 
dark night and these angels appeared in chapter 2 of Luke 10 and 11 and said to these shepherds, do not be afraid, but behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which is for all people, even you lowly shepherds who can't even testify in court because you're so looked down upon from society. I'm coming, that Jesus is coming for you. And today in the city of David, that's going to be Bethlehem. There is, a, there is one born, a Savior. Savior. That's who he is. And so let this exalted title of baby Jesus who lays in this manger in this humble setting, let, let this give you evidence of his great authority and, and great promise and power, though you don't see it in the scene as he's laying there or being held just like any infinite, but in the arms of his mother is the great deity and sovereignty and majestic ruler of all is <laughs> in the arms And he's doing that so he can save us. He's not going to come from heaven in all of his authority. They'll never kill him. They can't. He has to come in human form and die for us. Well, he's given so many other wonderful names. He's he's called king. He certainly is a king. Pilate was mad at him and trying to get him off the hook, but Jesus wasn't working with him. And he said, you say you're a king. And Jesus said, you're right, I am a king. And for this I was born. And for this I have come to this world to testify the truth. And everyone who hears the truth, hears my voice. I'm a king. He's king. And and he's he's so personal. He's so human. He's fully God, but he's so human. We relate with him. And yet he is our king. And this king's not going to die. He's also called to give him the name the son of God. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. That means he shares all things with his father. He's at the right hand. He has all authority. It's a statement of equality. He's also called Lord. What an amazing name. He's called Lord. Curios. Ruler. Master. He's been given this divine designation of who he is. This one born in Bethlehem is the incarnate son of God. He he has the right to all things. He's the chief of all things. He's the first of all things. He's the foremost of all things. He's Lord. And without confessing him as Lord from your heart, you can't be saved. (laughs) He's also the Christ. He's called the Christ in Luke 2.11, who is Christ the Lord. This is an equivalent word to Messiah. This is the office that he's given. It speaks of his ultimate authority and the anointed one of God. There's only one who is anointed of God. It's Jesus. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one. To call Jesus Lord and Christ means you declare him as a sovereign authority over your life and you say he's everything God is. That's what it means. In the Old Testament and the New Testament use both terms. They refer to God and they refer to Jesus. The one who came in flesh and dwelt among us. They're synonymous. What a name. Well, finally, let me quit with just a few thoughts to encourage you. Your Christmas and the name of Jesus, number four. Let me, let me strongly encourage you not to let the trappings of a worldly Christmas rob you of the infinite worth of Jesus. It's going to get busy. I told my staff I found myself complaining on Granada already. (laughs) Oh, Lord, do not let traffic rob me of your beauty. Do not let my finances, lack of them or too much of them, rob me of seeing your glory. Do not let my expectations of what I think Christmas Day should be with all the right colors and pictures and kids and family and who's there and who's not there, do not let that rob me of the person of Jesus Christ who stepped out of heaven, who said, sacrifice and offering cannot save me. I'm coming to do it. Don't let it rob you. And I think we live in one of the most blessed times of all of history. We look at this and Christ has been revealed. The Father has called you by name to be one of his children. He sent his son to do it all, accomplish it all. And so as you prepare for Christmas this season, prepare your heart. Battle for it. Do battle. 
enjoy the season. It is a beautiful time. We love it. We get together with family. We eat too much. We have, there's nothing wrong with those things, but Jesus got to be somehow. We've got to keep him in the middle of it. Husbands and wives, you've got to work hard at this. Moms and dads, grandparents, you've got to put some effort into this. The flesh of our children and the flesh of moms and dads can get away quickly. There's nothing wrong with trees and presents and all of that, but can you point to Jesus and all of that? Can you talk about a gift and say, oh, son, daughters, family, let's talk about the greatest gift. Let's talk about a, a cross made of a tree that he was nailed on. Let's, let's work through some of those things together. Spend time with your Savior this year in the Word. Spend time in prayer, talking to him, thanking him, being reminded through the music of the season and the scriptures of the season of a heart that's been rescued from blackness and deadness. This morning, there's probably some in here whose hearts are grieving. You've lost somebody this year. There's somebody not going to be around the tree or around the table this season. Maybe it will be a little quieter this year for you. But do not fail to worship. Listen, our longing hearts were waiting for the Messiah. In your grief, wait on him. He won't disappoint you. He'll be there for you. Turn to him. Let him know your sorrows. He suffered all things but without sin. And he will meet you. I think just like the believers of the Old Testament, we wait, that waited for his first advent, we wait for his second. This year I've been thinking more about that. Lord, I, they were longing, Simeon and Anna and the temple were longing for the coming Messiah, the, the Redeemer of Israel. They were longing for him. Do we long for him? Are you, are you ready for Jesus to come? Are you ready for his second advent? Are you ready for him to come and gather his saints? Are you ready for him to put his feet on the Mount of Olives and split it in two and rule and reign? Are you ready for him? He's coming. And maybe we need Christmas to remind us to be waiting and ready. Disciple yourself to think about the name of Jesus. There's no greater name. Father, I thank you for our time in the word this morning. I first thank you for your plan, Father, to send your son, the Savior, Redeemer. Thank you for the description of him we've just barely touched in the Old Testament this morning. But you did send him, and he did come, and you gave him a name. And when we look at him, we say, that's us. He's in human form. And by your grace and by your mercy alone, we have put our faith in that Jesus. And so, Lord, as we look at the different scenes and babies and mangers and, and sing carols, and, and Lord, may we just be consumed with this one named Jesus. And Lord, may we invite others to know him. Find somebody who is depressed, someone who's struggling, someone who has no peace, and offer them the Prince of Peace. Offer them the message of the gospel. We know you have the power to save. That's what you came to do, Jesus. So may we be bold this Christmas to reach out to somebody who is lonely, who doesn't have Christ, who's living in a pagan and a godless world, and give them the only hope of eternity. Lord, may we as families and individuals celebrate Jesus in a pure form this year than we ever have. We pray this in Jesus' name.